The following is an in-depth analysis. If you haven't seen this film, you might want to before watching this review. Will Smith's inebriated, poor-mannered, irresponsible, superpowered John Hancock has about as much in common with his namesake, the Founding Father, as Martin Sheen has with Richard Simmons. And that's the point. He's supposed to be a superhero, and he's not at all what you would expect. Intended as a riff on Superman and popular superhero films in general, Hancock starts out as a satire that tries, as so many properties have in the last several years, to depict the realistic superpowered crime fighter. The attitude is this, real people are flawed and selfish, and Superman is an icon and a perfect role model, not an example of what someone in his position would really be like. Being a superhero would demand too much of a person's time and patience. He would have to put everyone else first, all the time, while receiving nothing in return, and he'd likely be blamed or feared whenever he made any sort of mistake, especially if he was invulnerable and couldn't be stopped by the government. And why on earth would anyone, just because he had the power, put himself in the position to be both used and then ridiculed by everyone? There would be consequences to his actions, even if he couldn't physically be harmed, and everyone wouldn't instantly love or trust him just because he saved people from violence or tragedy. Despite a number of comics that have portrayed superheroes as drunks or bullies or just generally despicable people, Watchmen, Kick-Ass, Supreme Power, there were relatively few of those on film by 2008. You had your comic book anti-heroes and your lethal enforcers, but nothing like this. And so although, in my opinion, this wasn't an especially original idea, and I feel like I've seen it executed better both before and since in various media, it seemed different enough from the cookie-cutter plotted superhero origin pictures audiences were inundated with in the early 2000s. It was hoping to ride on the popularity of those movies to make it viable, but to see audiences walk away with a new experience. This film came out in July of 2008, and that's ironically the same summer two other superhero blockbusters arrived, whose intense popularity changed a lot of people's perception of the superhero genre, proving that just because it was about somebody wearing a costume and fighting bad guys didn't mean it couldn't be about something thought-provoking or treat us to layered characters with fascinating psychologies. And those were, of course, Iron Man and The Dark Knight. And not too long after that, other comic books presenting uncouth or non-standard superheroes became films, with both Watchmen and Kick-Ass. Hancock performed quite well at the box office, raking in $624 million against its $150 million budget. I wonder if it would have done so well in 2009 or 2010. Hancock is a real quagmire, a movie that wants to be a film about a real human character who just happens to be a superhero rather than a superhero movie. It hits the ground running with the premise, and then precisely halfway through, it switches gears entirely. It suddenly gives us a new story that we didn't come to it expecting, or I would imagine for a lot of people, one they didn't really want. It starts out as a movie about a man with no direction, who finds a friend who believes in him despite all of his faults, and helps him to find purpose and a newfound faith in people when he thought he was all alone. In the second half, the film degenerates into what it was trying to avoid in the first place, bland, generic superhero fare. It's a phenomenon I can't remember ever witnessing with another film. Hancock is its own sequel. The movie began as a script as far back as 1996, during a time when this premise would have seemed even newer and edgier. 
Then it was called Tonight He Comes, a much darker, grimier film, think blacker than even The Crow, about a superhero who does go around saving people, but also takes advantage of everyone else, and has buried his morality as deep as he can bury it. He's befriended by a husband and wife and their son, like here, and Ray is a police officer no one takes seriously. His son bullied, again, like here, but that's the extent of the similarities between versions. In the film's climax, Hancock goes so far off the deep end, he kidnaps Ray's wife, and I think even attempts to rape her. I suppose he isn't invulnerable in that version. It might have ended up as a cult classic, but obviously wasn't blockbuster material. So were this to be a blockbuster, it would need to pretty much be turned into something else entirely. All that remained in that final product was John Hancock, some supporting character names, and the idea that Hancock is a reprehensible superhero, toned down for a general audience. Screenwriter Vincent No was brought in to make these changes to add accessibility, and he succeeded at that until he overthought the second half and dreamed up such a convoluted mythology that it some viewers and critics after such a promising opening. Will Smith is playing against type, which is refreshing given that this is yet another in a long line of mega blockbuster star vehicles for him. He's not just playing that lovable, wisecracking, sarcastic underdog again. Hancock is rougher around the edges, generally unlikable, but what redeems him is that Will Smith brings so much heart to the role. He has to fight to keep up that belligerent facade. He's crude, antisocial, he's an alcoholic, a womanizer, and he's also incapable of standing back and watching innocent people get hurt. And there's something optimistic about seeing a guy who, at his core, is a man who cares, finds a reason to care again. When Hancock is at its best, it's not a movie about someone who has the power to save people, so he does. It's about a man who has that power, and he can't be happy if he doesn't use it for good. So many superhero stories are about why a person becomes a superhero, and what sets Hancock apart is that it's the story of a jaded person who figures out why he has to continue being a superhero for himself. The most effective element in the film is the interplay between Hancock and Ray, the personal relations man who Hancock saves from being run over by a train when his car is stuck in traffic on the tracks, and in traditional action movie style, it's the one time everything goes wrong so he can't get out, including the latch on the door breaking just then. Everyone there boos and criticizes Hancock. He might have saved one person, but he did it in the most destructive and dangerous way possible, because he's a total drunk well, train wreck. Why didn't you just fly him straight up? One of the drivers asks. Instead of doing that, Hancock just picked up the car and let the train smash right into him. But Ray sees an opportunity and uses his PR skills to convince Hancock to let him help change his superhero image. Ray is an optimist who's experienced failure after failure of his own, unable to find clients for his All Heart campaign, which encourages companies to give away large sums of goods to the needy in exchange for useless branding that tells people they're in the charity business. This is a guy who can relate to Hancock. They keep trying the same logical tact, and they keep expecting people to change their minds about them. Ray brings Hancock home to the family, and despite his wife's reservations about him, Ray keeps a positive attitude. Sure, he can change the way the world sees Hancock, and that begins with the way Hancock sees himself. A little kid can be a complete nuisance in a film like this, but not this kid. Not only is Aaron instantly likable, but he has an important part to play in Hancock's rehabilitation. The film opens with a kid waking Hancock up on a park bench and telling him he's sleeping through a 
shootout and car chase on the highway, and he needs to take out the bad guys. When Hancock tells him to get out of his face, the kid calls him an a-hole, which is a recurring insult throughout the movie, as odd as it is that every single person who doesn't like him chooses that particular term. But fair enough. He is kind of an a-hole. That's the point. He's a superhero who flies and has super strength, and even the kids are calling him an a-hole. If you can fly and kids don't like you, you've got to be doing something monumentally wrong. But Aaron is trusting, and he gets it from his family. He gives Hancock the benefit of the doubt, maybe in part because his father does. Hancock is the way he is because he's given up on people. It's hard to say who gave up on whom first, humanity on Hancock or Hancock on humanity. But Hancock is in a rut because he still feels compelled to stop big catastrophes, and no one appreciates him for it. And their position makes perfect sense. You have to be careful when you're super strong, or you'll cause a lot of taxpayer dollars and property damage. So it's a never-ending cycle. People can't like Hancock because he's a menace, but they can't live without him because he really can and does do things local law enforcement can't. And since everyone hates him and he has nothing else to live for, Hancock doesn't know how to care enough to, well, quit being an a-hole. I like that it isn't a simple matter of Ray giving him common sense solutions. He sees the better side of humanity in Ray and his son, who represents an upcoming generation of people he'll have to deal with since he's an immortal, putting up with his garbage and still showing faith in him. That gives him the motivation to try to change. Ray's plan is a smart one. Convince Hancock to turn himself in, to show the public he's willing to be better, and to freely accept consequences for his actions, even when he doesn't have to. And then with him missing, crime will rise, people will realize how necessary he is. Once he's back on the streets, sobered up and fighting crime responsibly, they'll see him differently, and maybe he'll see them differently too. The film tries a lot of comedy. Some of it works for me. I love the running gag of Hancock constantly saying good job to cops and they're staring at him blankly. And then some of it doesn't. This isn't a stylized comic book film and Peter Berg makes a point to emphasize that in the making of featurette on the DVD. This wants to be a more grounded film where the only heightened elements are from the supernatural characters. It may be a riff on traditional superhero stories, but it's not an all-out farce or even a parody. And that makes some of the comedy bits, specifically the one where Hancock in prison shoves one man's head up another man's back end problematic for me. It's not just that it's crass, it's trying to present itself as smarter than other superhero movies, but then it resorts to physical absurdity and implausibility to get laughs, and that takes me out of the reality. I also don't like that so many people are willing to risk their lives to taunt Hancock just to get a rise out of him. It happens repeatedly by a bully that picks on Aaron and by several criminals. The point is that Hancock is unlikable and he isn't respected. Now, I wouldn't have had much respect for Hitler, but that doesn't mean I'd be stupid enough to say it to his face. He's Hitler! Hitler. Repeatedly, people in this movie call Hancock an a-hole, and when he's obviously flustered by it and is clearly ready to get in a very real confrontation with them, each and every one of them keeps pushing his buttons. Not only can this guy kill you in about 5,000 creative different ways, but he's usually intoxicated and popularly considered mentally unstable. So in a movie where criminals fear of Hancock keeps some of them at bay, illustrated by the fact that crime jumps 30% when he goes to jail, we're supposed to buy that so many people are stupid enough to provoke him like that? Once he solves a hostage situation without getting anyone killed, it's clear he's on the straight and narrow, and that he's grown as a person. And it doesn't happen too fast. I like the numerous cuts to the group therapy session in prison, where he says pass each time it's his turn to speak, until he finally opens up enough to say simply, 
I'm Hancock, and I drink and stuff. I continue to like Hancock more and more as I watch his struggle to be a better man, because it really is a struggle. He's not a new man by this point in the film, but he's found a friend who's put him on the right path. I like that Hancock still has a blunt style all his own, even when he's making a change. And I think the eagle on his hat, and then later on the back of his costume, thankfully the movie doesn't spell it out, is perhaps a symbol of that integrity and grace he's always going to have to work toward. He doesn't stop Red, the villain with the dead man switch, like Superman or even Batman would have. He gives him a chance to stand down, and when Red doesn't comply, he throws a piece of metal and cuts his hand off. I have a hard time believing his thumb wouldn't have come right off the trigger once his hand was severed from his arm and blown all those people up. But the point stands. This is still a different sort of superhero, and the movie makes a great case for superheroes in general. What he has to do may not always be pretty, but if the police can always get the job done, then why would we need vigilantes with superpowers? This is a minor lesson he learns that I would have liked to have seen explored more. When Ray tells Hancock he should tell the police they're doing a good job, Hancock says... If they're doing such a good job, what do they need me for? When he stops Red, he gets his answer. He does things in that scene that cops would be incapable of doing, and things they would be lawfully forbidden to do. By this point in the film, Ray's gone through his own character arc. He's figured out how to use his skills for a challenging but more realistic goal than he's attempted before. Hancock's rehabilitation is his reward for his eternal optimism. He was the only person who really believed in Hancock, and now that he's successfully helped Hancock become a real superhero in the public eye, he has restored faith in the way he sees people. Though, like Hancock, he still has a long way to go. He gets overly confident later and tries to force his all-heart project on a client meeting him to talk about Hancock. So now we come to the second half of the film, which I will resist calling Hancock 2, There Is Another. But it'll be hard. I know some people really like the revelations about Hancock's origin in the mythology, and I appreciate the attempt at an original explanation for these superpowers, but it doesn't work at all for me for two reasons. First, it goes from character-driven to plot-driven, but tries its darndest to come off like all that mythology serves the characters. And two, it discredits the mostly believable first half with a half-baked, ill-considered origin that really messes with its internal logic. I'm not saying the film should have left Hancock's origin it 80 years ago, I had a severe head trauma, lost all my memory, and woke up with superpowers. But it falls into the same trap so many other superhero movies do. It becomes all about the origin, and I stop caring about the character. Except for some scenes, like when Hancock stops a convenience store robbery and can relate to the shoplifter because he knows what it's like to do something just because no one can stop you. But he's found that there are still consequences to living that way, and he doesn't want to be alone. The latter half takes that idea. Hancock doesn't want to be alone, and handles it literally by giving him a weakness. He has to be alone to be a superhero, because the woman he used to be married to, Mary, makes him lose his powers and his immortality whenever he's near her. This in and of itself is good stuff. He figures out what he wants, public recognition, respect, to be a real hero. He gets that, and then he realizes what he has to sacrifice in order to keep it. The writer, Vincent No, describes the film in a featurette as a tragedy, but I feel like if he had wanted a tragic ending, there were myriad other more natural ways to get him there. Hancock discovers, to his dismay, that Ray's wife Mary is like him, which she reveals to him when they seem to be magnetically attracted to each other, nearly kissing for no reason in her kitchen until she instinctively throws him through the wall and out into the street. He thought he was the only one of his kind, but it turns out they're the only two of their kind. The movie makes the concept of superheroes as the modern mythology literal by making Hancock a god. 
They are what people have called gods and angels over the centuries. When two of them get close to each other for a long enough time, they become mortal, live out regular lives, and then die. Mary says that Hancock was the insurance policy of the gods, the one meant to stick around forever to save mortals. They loved each other deeply, but his destiny kept pulling them apart. Every time they started becoming mortals, someone would come along to try to kill them both and they would inevitably have to separate and become gods again, as if fate wouldn't allow Hancock to die. The last time it happened, Hancock conveniently lost his memory, no doubt so we could have this giant plot twist. It does do a fair job of making us suspicious of Mary, who seems to have some connection to Hancock from the beginning, who can't help but cry and then apologize to him at dinner, when Hancock explains how he was in that hospital with no memory and no one came to claim him. Of course, she was the only one who could have. This isn't the worst amnesia story I've ever seen, either. Thinking he was such a repulsive person that no one loved him while having no idea where he came from is a fair reason for spiraling into the pathetic person he turned into. What I don't like about it is that making Mary another superpowered being overcomplicates what started out as a simple story about a man finding a way to care about people again, adds an unnecessary and poorly conceived destiny angle, and it also makes her completely unsuspicious sympathetic. Her reasons for not coming to Hancock in the hospital 80 years ago are clear. Disaster strikes whenever they're together, and his losing his memory is her perfect chance to get away so they won't both have to die. What she really wanted actually was to get together with him and live out a normal human life and die with him, but since that couldn't happen, it was best to let fate win out and let him be a hero. In my opinion, that's kind of a weird story choice, but fine. That's all sad. But it makes me ask a whole bunch of questions about her. Number one, why didn't she move a lot further away? If she wants to make sure they never see each other again, why does she stay in California? She can fly. Why not move to Delaware or Finland? Number two, why isn't she also compelled to use her powers for the greater good? She's pretending to live the perfect family life she can never really have because she's immortal, letting her husband Ray believe she's going to age and die just like him. Not even considering the consequences of what's going to happen to her life and what she's going to emotionally do to her family when they find out who she really is. Ray is furious that she never told him this ticking time bomb of a factoid, and he has every reason to be. She's entirely selfish. She and Hancock are the only two people who can do what they can do. And on top of that, she's more powerful than he is. In their big gratuitous fight scene, we discover she can even control the weather. The movie glosses over this point entirely. Hancock has to learn lessons in responsibility, but she doesn't. I guess just because she's not destined to. I hope it's not just because she's a woman who wants to play a homemaker, because, you know, that would be a little bit sexist. Number three, why doesn't she ever have the courtesy to tell John Hancock what his real name is? For that matter, why doesn't he ever ask her? And number four, why does she feel the need to start wearing heavy eye makeup after she tells Hancock who she really is? If Hancock is only compelled to help people because it's fated, that completely undermines the more human story we started with. In a featurette, Vincent No explains it away by saying she helps a few people and thinks that makes as much sense as helping everyone. I think he's trying to excuse a major oversight in this character. That's nowhere to be seen in the movie. She doesn't use her powers for anything at all until Hancock shows up and she loses her temper. 
And just like Hancock doesn't like to be called an a-hole, Mary doesn't like to be called crazy, no doubt because there's truth to it. So Hancock's an a-hole and she's maybe not. I see Hancock striving to stop being an a-hole, but not Mary. She's in denial about her psychological issues. Once again, it's a little typical. The woman's gotta be the crazy one. I don't see why I'm supposed to appreciate her, but since Hancock has to lose her for good at the end, and I'm expected to care about that, I definitely get the feeling the movie wants me to like her. Hancock and Ray's meeting becomes utterly implausible when we discover he's married to the only other superhuman on the planet, who used to be Hancock's wife, no less. But I guess now that fate enters the equation, I'm supposed to excuse it. At one point, Mary says the fact that they keep finding each other again is physics. If they had some sort of built-in subconscious homing ability or something, where they kept involuntarily traveling to the other person's location, that'd be one thing. But this time, they find each other again because Hancock just happens to save her husband's life. That's not physics. That's happenstance. As is the fact that Red, the closest thing the movie has to a supervillain, and his cronies come to kill Hancock precisely when he's at his weakest, forcing him to get as far away from Mary as possible to save them both and never return, I guess, once and for all. So Destiny decides when everything happens in this story and is the sole motivator for why everyone does what they do. I can't care about a character who only asks because he's predestined to do so. Leaving it ambiguous is one thing. Having a character fighting their destiny can be compelling. But that's not what we have here. And besides, it's a story that wasn't even about destiny until it decided it had nowhere else to go. Again, I like that classic idea that the hero's path is a lonely one. Hancock is lonely at the beginning, and he's lonely at the end. But what he's gained is purpose. Figuring out who you want to be is one thing, but fighting the temptation to slip back into the lesser person you used to be, that's something else entirely. Illustrated by that great Seymour, Hancock jumps out of the prison to get a basketball back and finds himself at a crossroads. Will he do the hard thing and go back to prison, or the easy thing, go back to his old life and be miserable? The second half could have still been about Hancock learning about what he has to sacrifice to be a hero, and maybe even with a love interest, but Mary's a poor choice because I like Ray, and I don't want Hancock to break up his family. He may have found the thing he was missing all those years, but I don't really like or understand her, so it's hard for me to relate to him past the fundamental level. Maybe it would have been different if he had somehow regained his memories and remembered how they were as a couple. This really does feel a little like reviewing two different movies. I would really have liked to see where Hancock's character might have been taken with that simpler, more grounded premise. It's not to say it isn't still an entertaining film. Mary and John's fight is exciting and a lot of fun, and the effects are overall quite dazzling. I also really enjoy some of the slight nods for superhero fans, like the fact that at the end, Hancock winds up in New York. I actually had a similar problem with the movie Will Smith made right before this, I Am Legend. As soon as that big plot twist gets introduced partway through, the movie totally loses me. I'm going to give Hancock a 2.5 out of 4. Two points for a solid start, and only a .5 for that second half when the movie changes lanes at the intersection. Next time at Superhero Rewind, I'll be looking at a somewhat obscure film from 1983, also about a drunk superhero. It's a B-movie musical starring Alan Arkin and Christopher Lee called The Return of Captain Invincible. Stay tuned. Bye -bye.